All right, gentlemen. That's the one you got to watch out for in that rush hour traffic. Those old people that have lost their paper. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, NASCAR Nation? Mamba Smith here. Welcome to Mark Mamba and the Mayor Podcast. On this episode, we celebrate with the amigo, Daniel Suarez, finally gets that first career Cup Series win. And we look back at his journey on making his dreams a reality. First checker flags are always special. We're here from Mark and Jeff and get their thoughts on their own first Cup Series wins. And what does the future hold for dirt racing and road course racing as we roll through the NASCAR schedule? Let's get it started on Mark Mamba and the Mayor. Welcome back to Mark Mamba and the Mayor podcast. Of course, I got my guys Mark Martin and Jeff Burton. All right, gentlemen, let's go. Let's get after it. We were at Sonoma, and it felt like it was a um, an industry win for Daniel Suarez. I mean, everyone was so stoked. If you looked at social media, he had Daniel's amigos up on the top of the hill. Uh, what did you guys think about that win for Daniel Suarez? Yeah, oh, man, that was that was sweet. Watching Daniel's struggles, uh, I think, makes it so much sweeter. We see that sometimes. It's like catching lightning in a bottle and sometimes it's just like molasses and I, I remember Daniel coming on the scene and just being fast lightning fast like where did this dude come from but you know he had had a lot to learn to harness all that and then it seemed like he had it about all harnessed and then the struggles really started to appear to see a guy struggle and then finally put a whooping on him is it's just it's good times i mean that's what racing is all about you've got to have days like that and and guys like that 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 are good guys that come out on top eventually mom i was walking in the um, garage at daytona about the time that he was walking out of the garage after qualifying where he missed the race for the daytona 500 driving for the gaunt brothers the look on his face was like the end of his career. And I had so much sympathy for him at that moment because I've been there where you don't make a race. You feel like your world's coming to an end. He had just been you know, released from one of the biggest teams in the sport and then goes to Daytona and misses the race. There's no way that you're not thinking, this is it, man. Like, this is the end. And to see him go through those struggles and come close to winning and it not working out, it just shows you can't quit. It also shows you if you're going to invest in a young driver and you give up on to it too quick, you deserve to get beaten by them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's crazy. Like, they, you know, you take a kid where you know he's at before he should be there and you move him in there and then you're like, ah, just don't have the patience to wait it out. And he's going to beat you one day. We've seen it over and over and over. And because it makes them mad and it makes them tougher and it makes them stronger and they're already talented. And now you take that guy and you piss him off. And now he's going to come beat you. He's going to find a way. And and how many times are we going to see the same picture play out where people invest in a young driver and they just don't give them the time that they need? I mean, you talk about the struggle. So that's his first cup win in 195 starts. But then on the flip side, 
Everyone forgets he's a 2016 Xfinity champ. Like he's a champion. Like it, cup racing is not—it's not easy. And he bounced around right from Joe Gibbs to Stuart Haas, then a step back as far as organization-wise to the Gaunt brothers, and now he's with Trackhouse. Have you guys seen anybody else go from powerhouse to powerhouse and then finally hit it and get going like this before? It doesn't come to mind, but I know it's happened. I mean, I, I just, I don't have a particular incident that comes to mind other than kind of, sort of with Joey Logano. I, I don't feel like he really broke out until he got over at Pinsky. People think that the step from Xfinity to Cup is, you know, a, a logical step. It will trip just about all of them. It is massive, massively different and a lot tougher than Xfinity. Jeff, talk about that a little bit because you got Harrison. He's making that step right now. He's going through it and he's making his strides. What is it about that step right now that is so difficult? Well, it's always been difficult. And uh, Mark said it best. It's trip, it chips us all up. It took me, and, and I was the only one that knew it. Like there were no results that, that I can look back on and say, yeah, that's why. But it was it was three quarters of the way through my second year in cup before I thought that, okay, things are slowing down. I kind of understand. I feel like I can do this. It took me that long. What's so hard about it is you have to be patient. You have to have a plan. You have to have people around you that support that plan and then execute on it. And some, a lot of times execution on that plan doesn't show results. It's not like you can look at a piece of paper and say, oh, look, they finished 10th. Like you have to dig into the race and you have to be part of the team and part of the, the structure that says, oh, wow, yeah, that was good. That was good. This still wasn't good. And it'll beat you down. I mean, it will beat you down. Rarely does somebody come in the cup that wasn't having success somewhere else, right? And now you're not. And you're, it just kills your confidence. And I think that that's the main thing for any young driver is to remember that it's a process. Trust the process. But then you have all these examples of where people ran out of patience. And now you're out on the street looking for a ride. This is what you want to do. And if you're not in a ride, you can't do it. So it's just crazy pressure to all say, man, we're just going to be good. We're going to take time. I'll <laughs> say that. It's like, damn, we got to go. And and then then that's when trouble starts. So it's a uh, it takes everybody to raise a rookie. I mean, it really does. It takes everybody. And uh, if you're not cut out for it, don't sign them because it's going to be difficult. Uh, and well, there's one more thing to add to that, too. There's a certain amount of magic that happens when you win a race or when you don't big time. And I just look at Carson Hosefar right now, uh, and I can identify that was my cup in the Xfinity. I went, I, I won my fifth, seventh race, something like that. It was nothing. Happened right away, and then a couple more that season. Man, in cup, I ran second five times. And I mean, every time I look up, Earnhardt would be in front of me, or Harry Gantt, you know, and it's just, it was crushing. And man, we were hauling mail. Man, we were getting it. But there was one guy that was just in, you know, in position in front of me when the when the flag flew. I see that, you know, I saw that with Daniel. It was like, dude, he was just he was close. He had the speed, but all those stars have to line up for you to close the deal. Before we move on from that, I want to get from you guys. How tough is it when he looks at when that team, the ninety-nine team, looks across the hall and the one team is on top of the speed sheets every week. They're getting talked about week in and week out. They got their couple wins. And then 
they didn't fall. They put themselves in position at Talladega, but the seas parted and they get another one. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, how tough is that to kind of look across the table at your teammates and be like, when is it our time? It's not easy. You have to be pretty disciplined mentally to be able to weather that. It's not easy to see your teammate living it up and you're out there busting it and it's not happening for you. It's really bad if you're slow. Yeah. yeah. Daniel's been fast a lot and that's encouraging. But it still takes mental toughness to be able to weather that storm. It's a fine line, Mama, between being in denial and being realistic. In sports, the results are right there. It's on the scoreboard. It's right there. As a race team, though, if you only look at those results, you can get yourself messed up. And in the, in the 99 and Daniel Suarez's situation, they really needed at times to be looking beyond the result and saying, okay, how did we run? Did we have speed? Were we do? You know what I mean? Like that's so important to do. If you don't do that, you don't get the real assessment. Now, I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard, well, you know, yeah, we're not fast, but we got good long run speed. You know what that means? That means you're slow. (laughs) (laughs) And you can justify running 10th in a race where you ran 20th all day. And you can say, well, we ran 10th. We just need to be a little better. No, you ran 20th all day. So you got to be honest with yourself. you got to really do that assessment. And in their situation, I think that actually helped them by being able to say, okay, we got speed. We're doing the right things. Let's just keep doing that. That's much, much easier than looking and saying, okay, we're running 20th every week and Ross is winning. That's a much more difficult thing to deal with. I think it's, I think it's something we talk about in the garage all the time, right? Like running 25th, is, you're working way harder than if you're running 10th. Like if you're 10th, you're like, all right, we're, we're pretty close. We need a couple more things, a little execution. Running 25th, it's the whole, it's the whole thing we got to figure out, boys. We're, we're not doing getting it done. So we're talking about first wins. Mark, your first win came at Rockingham, October 22nd of 1989. Uh, in your 113th start, as you said, it was kind of a, a little bit of a longer beginning for you. And, and Jeff, yours came at Texas uh, April 6th of 97 in your 96th start. So both of you guys, it took a, a while to get that. When you finally got that, take us in those moments for you both. When you finally got that monkey off your back and got that win, what was that like? Well, like I said before, you know, we ran second six times, not five times, you know, and it just every week the media would come up on Friday morning for practice and say, when are you going to win? When are you going to win? When are you going to win? I mean, you know, we were hauling the mail. We were sitting on poles. But, you know, um, when when we put the Roush Racing thing together, the first year was, you know, a teeth cutting year. But that second year in 1989, I mean, we we had the hammer. We were fast. We tested every week. We tested every single track that we raced at. We were on it working like you wouldn't believe. And for fast, but we we hadn't won. We had a bunch won and something happened. It was a, it was a struggle. Now for me, very much like Jeff, it's, it was different back even when Jeff came in. You didn't get, like Jeff didn't get my cars. You know, you didn't get, when I got started, I didn't get Kel Yarborough's cars and Daryl Walters and Bobby Housen's cars. You know, you got the middle of the pack at best or probably back of the pack cars. And that's where you got your experience. The difference today is these kids get, they get the best stuff. They get really good stuff. Put it like that. They get the veteran stuff. They get what Kyle Bush gets or Kevin Harvick gets or, 
or, you, you know, uh, one of those guys. I mean, they, they get top shelf equipment and there's a lot more pressure for you to make fewer mistakes and, and learn faster than it was for, for Jeff and I. So, you know, we would, we would typically accumulate a lot more races under our belt when people weren't watching as close and before we got kind of in the spotlight. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, you know, I drove for the Stavola brothers and no one really expected us or expected me to run up front. It, uh, you know, we were a little bit of an underfunded team and they were certainly trying hard, but we didn't have the same funding as some other teams did. And you kind of quietly went about your business. You didn't have the pressure that, that these guys have today. I've always felt like I've always had the 100 number. It really takes 100 cup races before you really feel like you really are prepared to consistently run in the front. It's interesting that I was 90-something and Mark was just yeah, over 100, yeah. right? But for us, when we started in 99, we, we put ourselves in position to win a lot of races, but we, we couldn't close the deal. And finally, being able to close the deal on a day where – so many things went wrong for so many people it was kind of ironic, really. Like, you know, it didn't go wrong for us. We didn't screw it up uh, where we had been screwing the other ones up. But I mean, it was a huge weight off of your shoulders for a few minutes. Like, I don't, I don't, you're talking to the two most miserable winners in the history of racing. Because, um, <laughs> you know, you knew that like, yeah, we won. Yeah. And then like 10 minutes later, you're already thinking about the next race. And I, it's just miserable to be like that, but that's how we were both built. And, and I mean, I literally remember standing in victory lane at Texas and everybody's ready to party and go race hell. And I'm like, the plane's waiting on us. We got to go. Like they're waiting on us to leave. And the only thing I was thinking about was getting home and go to the shop the next day. I wasn't thinking about going and drinking beer, raising hell. That was the I, not in the least. I wanted to go get home, just go back to work because I knew we had to work the next week if we were going to win again. So I don't know. It's just Mark and I didn't celebrate very well, but I think that was part of the reason we were successful. It does, you know. It, it it came with the it came with the territory. Yeah, different strokes for different folks, right? Mark, you get that you get that win, and the team everything changes in your mind as far as how you feel about it, right? Because you finally broke through. But to to just point, you guys are you guys were right back on the grind. So did you ever give yourself a chance, or were you like just like Jeff? It's like, all right, boys, let's figure out how to do this thing again. I saw a funny interview uh, just the other day that was at Richmond. You know, we won. In October at Rockingham, and then you go to Phoenix and you go to Atlanta and the season's over. Then you go to Daytona and you go to Richmond. So it's four races after I won. And I was asked, you know, is there pressure on you to win again? You know, and I was like, dude, we won four races ago. You know, it's going to happen again, but you just got to be a little bit patient here. You know, and so I was the one that was patient. The the, uh, TV interview wasn't. So... I was realistic. I knew how hard it was to win those things. I, yeah, I said in Rockingham and Victory Lane, my, my life was fulfilled. It had been that hard. I mean, it had been that freaking hard. For me, anything beyond that was icing on the cake. And I finally, I did it. You know, we did it. And it had been hard. So, you know, and I always said, and everybody made fun of me. I always said, you never know when this win is the last one. 2000 was nearly my last one. 
you know, 2005 was nearly my last one. And, uh, you know, 2002 was nearly my last one. And finally, 2009 was, you know, and, and I said it and it was. So, you know, you never know. You never know when it'll never happen again. So you just, uh, it's hard, man. It's hard to win those things. But Mama, when you start looking at the number of people that have won more than 10 races, Small. it's, yeah. And, and you start looking at the number of people that, only, that won one race or two races or three races. Anyone that thinks that that might not, that win right there might be your last one. Anyone that doesn't think that's true is arrogant as hell because this is hard. I heard somebody make a comment, two guys racing against each other, and they're like, yeah, but that was for his first win. So that was for that guy's 30th win. Like it, that, his 30th win is as important as this is his first win. Like it, that, that drove me nuts when I heard somebody say that. He could drive differently because it was for his first win. Well, man, they're all so damn hard to win. Like how could you, you know, Denny Hamlin's next win is huge for him. Yeah, and, and it's as huge as it was his first win. And that's how hard they are. When I was at Stuart Haas and, and Kevin came over with Rodney, well, Rodney brought a lot of the guys that were uh, on Mark's 55 uh, at MWR and some guys that were at Petty or some other places that they had never won before, right? So they're coming to Stuart Haas where – we're, I mean, they're perennial winners. Like, this is what it's expected. This is what we do here. And there's guys that had never won. And then all of a sudden, they won five races in the championship. Like, talk about, like, a complete <laughs> a life switch. Because you never thought. At some point, honestly, like, especially for a crew guy, you're like, man, maybe I'll never get that opportunity to be with a team like that. You know, I'm sure you guys had some crew guys that it, it meant a lot for you to get them a win. Yeah, well, you know, in 2002, um, we switched teams with Kurt Bush. So Jimmy Finney and all my guys in the six went over uh and 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 uh did Kurt Bush's program and I got uh Ben Leslie and all those young guys. Most of the guys on that team had not been to Victory Lane. And man, we won the Coke 600. And and they told me Ben told me two months before, he says, We're gonna win. We're going to build you a car. I know how you want it. I'm going to win tunnel time. I'm going to push your nose over to the, to the way over to the left because I know you like a loose race car. I'm going to pull, I'm going to cheat it up a little bit. I'm going to put the pan underneath the front of it. I'm going to go to the wind tunnel. We got, we got a test. We're going to test and we're going to get that million dollars that paid a million dollar bonus. We're going to get it. And we did. And they were elated. I mean, it's still almost, I almost tear up every time I see a picture of all those guys because they were so excited and there was so much enthusiasm. And uh, that was, that was really cool. Jeff, you have it, you got something like that? Well, we used to, we used to make sure that anytime someone was on the team that was their first win, we made sure that we got a picture, you know, with driver crew chief trophy and that and that guy because i don't know anybody that i worked with that didn't recognize how special it was to win a race and 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 didn't take it for granted i mean nobody i just i don't remember working with anybody they just took them for granted like they'll just come and popcorn like popcorn you know what i mean and and 
Um, so we just always made sure that if it was somebody's first win, that there was a, a picture taken. So no matter what, for the rest of their life, they would they were they were in victory lane in the cup race. Yeah, I mean our sport's different, right? I mean, in every other sport, there's you're gonna win, you're gonna win at some point. It's ticking ball. You're gonna this one. You really might not might not happen. Um, and you know it's special when it does. And I, I've been lucky to be a part of a bunch too. So. We're still at Sonoma. Let's let's stay right here at Sonoma, but let's turn the clock back to about 1991. It's uh, Ricky Rudd is running second. Davey Allison is in the lead. It's coming down. They're coming to the white. They're coming through turn 11 and the white. And Ricky, the broadcast said Davey went a little wide on his entry, and Ricky kind of put his nose in there. He got him in the right rear corner, but I don't, I mean, you guys can, you YouTube it, YouTube this finish, and you guys be the judge. When you guys saw that video, what did you guys think about that? Mark, you were in the race, so. Well, the reason I want to talk about that is because of today's etiquette. That would be not a, a non-issue today, uh, that, that same incident. Ricky rode in there. Ricky did not have a reputation for being rough. Now, he'd give it back. But he, you know, he did not have a reputation for being rough. And of course, you know, uh, a Davey was a uh, white hat guy, all, you know, and never uh, anything but clean. So it was kind of a situation where I never really heard, you know, Ricky's take on it. But Ricky rode in there and bumped him in the back bumper and he went around and he got back going. And so he was still in second place. So Ricky took the white. And the next time by, uh, when Ricky was coming off of 11 for the checkered, the black flags were waving. And they take the weight, win away. And Davey still gets the win, you know, because Davey beat everybody else after turning around. He, you know, he kept it going. And I just kind of wanted to bring that up because of today's etiquette. I just don't think you would see that. And, you know, it was a surprise then uh, for – the etiquette of the day, I think it fit the etiquette of the day. It was a time of you earn it, you have it. You know, if you don't earn it, you, it's not yours. And, and so at the time, I think it was a it was appropriate call, although it was a very startling call. You didn't see that. I don't recall seeing that uh, any other time in my career. But today, I don't think anybody would bad or not and say hey that's what you know that's what you're supposed to do matter of fact didn't Denny do that to Tony uh back up there on the other end of the racetrack and Tony just managed to get him back before it was over you know Denny turned him around you know up there in, in uh, uh five or six wherever it was up on the other end Tony just uh got to him and actually I think Denny slipped so uh, you wouldn't see a, I don't think you'd see a black flag today for that same in incident I mean, I don't really, I mean, even short track racing, I mean, it, it's hit or miss. And Jeff, you know, you've talked about it before. It's like the fans think, like when we talk about drivers getting into it, fans think, oh, fighting. Like that's what, that's not the etiquette. And and neither, I mean, you were you were racing Xfinity race in Rougemont the night before, so you weren't there, but I'm sure you heard about it. And at that time, what did you think about it? Well, you know, you, you got to go back and, you know, at that time, you know, also, you know, that you would get penalized at a short track. Um, you know, you would, they would black flag you at a short track. Like they didn't, they, 
still kind of had a little bit of control. Yeah, it was. I remember watching the race. I mean, it was shocking that that was happening, but you could kind of understand why. If you're a Ricky Rudd fan, you're like, ah, you know, if you're a Davey Allison fan, but, but you liked it. But it's such a difficult thing. Like, we, we want, I mean, Mark and I, I think it's fair to say, we, you know, we have a history, had a history of racing very clean. Um, certainly got into our share of tangles, but typically, you know, it was just racing things like, and, and uh, we, you know, we raced very clean and we expected to be raced clean. We felt like if we raced you clean, then you should race me clean. And that's not necessarily how it's happening today. It is a new environment, uh, with the way points are paid and how important rate winner a race is. All those things are new. The rules are being written even today, you know, this long into the sport, the rules are still being written and there is no rule. It's everybody's, you know, what they believe is the right thing to do just to run into the back of somebody to move them out of the way for a win or second or third or 10th isn't cool to me. It's just not like, I don't, I don't see the honor in it. I don't see the skill in it. Listen, you're racing side by side you drive down in the corner, you get in there a little too deep and you're, you know, you're up the track. That's one thing, but just to roll into the back of somebody, just knock them out of the way for the win. I don't, I'm just not into it. Hey, listen, if you did it to me, Okay. You know, if you, if you moved me out of the way a few weeks before, then yeah, that, then you, you wrote the rules at that point. And you wrote the rules and all you're doing is having to be abide by. Um, but you, you, you know, the stuff like that, I don't like. Uh, however, I will say this. I don't want NASCAR making the call. Like, I don't want to be commentating a race and be sitting there wondering, well, what's NASCAR going to say about that? You know what I mean? Like, the hell with that. I don't want to have, I don't want NASCAR to be in that position to have to make calls on driving unless it gets extreme, like extreme situation, Matt Kenseth, Joey Logano, Martinsville, that kind of thing. You know, I, unless it gets that extreme, I don't want them out of it. Let the drivers handle it because if you let the drivers handle it, it will probably, it'll go through phases. It always has. It'll go through phases where it gets really rough. It'll go through phases where it's not so rough. They'll typically work it out. Typically, it, it does get worked out. So, but I just, I don't, it puts NASCAR in a difficult spot. I don't want them making calls. I just don't want NASCAR in the, in the business of deciding what was intentional, what wasn't intentional. Because I can tell you, I've wrecked some people before. And if you watch it, you're like, he wrecked that person on purpose. And I completely made a mistake. And, and so they have, they would have no way of knowing. And I just, I'm just not in the NASCAR making those calls. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's let the let the drivers handle it. Let the teams police itself and the sport the way it's been. It always it always has and will continue to do so. As we look back, we'll go back to the future. Uh, we just went truck racing at Knoxville uh, on the dirt. Obviously, Cup cars and trucks were at Bristol too. Uh, we got a bunch of road courses on the schedule. We got uh, Road America coming up. What do you guys think the future holds for dirt racing and road course racing uh, in the Cup Series? I mean, it, it seems like it's a very mixed bag about what people want, um, but they do want a little bit of all of it. So I'm interested to hear your take. Well, you know, I've liked it so far. I've liked the dirt. Uh, I wouldn't want to race it as a, as a Cup driver. I would have hated it with the passion because it's not what we do. And I wouldn't want to dilute my focus into something that was that 
different than pavement racing. But from a spectator standpoint, it's been fun. I enjoy it, but I think that Jeff probably would have a better take on it because he's in broadcasting and he knows a little bit. He sees things from a little bit different view than I do. As a pure fan, I like to see them slipping and sliding and and tearing body panels off and being able to still be competitive with a fender gone or valence knocked off, you know, and those kind of things. Um, it's interesting. But for the teams, it's got to be brutal. It's got to be really difficult for the teams. Yeah, I would, I would think for the teams and the drivers alike. It's such a different skill set, that you, but you have to prepare for it. You can't ignore it. And, and you know, I, one thing that NASCAR has done, some mistakes that have been made in the past, is that a little bit was good, so then a lot's got to be better. And we're seeing a little bit of that on road courses now where, hey, fans are liking road courses, so let's add a lot of them. And our best racing has been a mile and a half. <laughs> so, you know, you got to be careful not to always be chasing something. Uh, you got to know who you are and, and kind of stick to that, be willing to change some. The thing that the dirt racing does provide, it does provide slipping around, sliding around. You see the cars moving a lot more. I hope we don't go to more of them. I, you know, I, if, if you if you do them all the time, there's nothing different about it. Making it that race or that weekend an individual uh, race of, of itself, something unique, I think is important. But that doesn't mean it always has to be dirt. It could be something else. It could be, you know, this conversation is about a street course. You know, how would a street course work in NASCAR? I don't I don't know. To me, it looks like it'd be about impossible to pass. Um, so that would be a major challenge. I, you'd have to have a street course that was different than what I see other street courses, in my opinion, for it to be successful. You know, but but the thing that, and, and the track operators aren't going to like when I say this, but the thing that dirt racing, short track racing, road course racing does is it opens up more venues around the country. You don't have to own a facility to put on a cup race. We learned that in LA. You look at the road, some of the road courses, right? You know, like Coda. That's not owned by any of the, the groups that own all the racetracks we race on. Um, you know, Wisconsin, like that's owned by a different group. So if, if you go to if you go to dirt tracks, if you go to short tracks, if you go to road courses, where you go opens up exponentially. Portland is a great example with Xfinity cars. You know, you were able to go to a racetrack not having to make the investment in building the racetrack. And that's something that I think our sport learned a tremendous amount when they went to L.A. Like this is a really literally going to race around a football field. But the investment was simply the adjustments that had to be made to put the racetrack in, not the entire structure. And so that gives our sport more opportunities to go out and, and, and expose the sport to more people. And, and we don't need more races. Like we have plenty of races. You can make an argument we could do with less races, but we need to be in more places. You can do that if you can go to facilities that you don't have to own as a sport in order to have an event. And once you look at it like that and you say, well, here are all these racetracks around the country or around the world for that matter that we could go and race on, then it gets many, many more opportunities. And I think that's one thing that you're going to see in the future. You're going to see uh, the schedule that represents showing this sport to as many people as possible on different types of racetracks. You got the dirt race, the clash, and the all-star race. You, to me, 
put those three on rotation in different places and let's just see. Let's let's go have some fun and kind of throw the spaghetti at the wall and, and see what sticks and what we like and what we don't like. I mean, I don't why not? Mark, is there any place you never got to race that you wish you would have been able to at the cup level? It would have been cool to race at Texas World Speedway. Um I uh I borrowed a, a USAC stock car from a guy in 1978 and put an engine in it and went down there for the USAC stock car race. And uh, I made about six laps and blew up. Of course, didn't have a spare motor. So I was a spectator, but I got to stand at the back of AJ Foyt's pits and see how he laid out his pits and all that stuff. He actually ran Banjo Grimm and I off. We were sitting there checking everything out. And he told us, get out of here. So uh, we were trying to learn how how to do it, you know. We were just kids. We were teenagers. But that would have been cool. And uh, uh, I tell you, I really got the bug at, at Coda. You know, I went there personally and saw that race. And uh, it was one place that I wish I had a driven on. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, do you have any place that you wish that uh, you could have got to? Yeah. I- you know, nothing really stands out. I mean, Coda's Coda's looks really cool. It looks like a fun racetrack. I just I think that we've had this golden opportunity in front of our sport that we've not taken advantage of in a long time. A cup car at Nashville could be a magical thing. A cup car at at the fairground. Yeah, the yeah, little one. Yeah, yeah. fairground. I, I, I'm I'm not I'm saying this. You know. I'm saying this, I can't, I'm from South Boston, Virginia, but I'm saying South Boston, just think about any short track around the country. You know, a cup race at Pensacola, Florida, a cup race at South Boston, Virginia. It just would create this incredible environment. Wow, Mark and I were lucky enough. He got his first win at Rockingham. We talked about that earlier. I don't know how, what, when, but if we could get that racetrack back, People talk about North Wilkesboro, and I know the Save the Speedway people in North Wilkesboro are crazy about that racetrack. And unfortunately, they had full grandstands, and and the sport left them, and that is unfortunate. The race is coming back there this summer. I'm actually going to go watch some of those races. But a cup race at Rockingham is a magical thing. It is to drive a car around Rockingham. It is a huge skill to do it. It is a damn roller coaster ride. It is massive tire fall off. It is a, it is a beautiful thing. And if we could bring that back somehow, and I was lucky enough to win there, race there, like that place is badass. It is just badass. And and it lost its races. People weren't coming like they used to. Unlike North Wilkesboro, the fans weren't coming, and you know it 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 unfortunately got left behind. But but the quality of racing from that facility was super high, super, super high. And, and my, my old retro Jeff wants to go back and run, <laughs> run, run, run a race at Rockingham. All right, boys. Out of the groove. The little question Gives a little insight, a little different perspective. Right now it's coming from me and the crew, but hopefully it comes from the fans here in the, in the near future. We just rolled through Father's Day. 
Mark and Jeff, you guys have two beautiful families and kids. What is one of your favorite memories from Father's Day at the racetrack? For me, it was always uh, MRO and having Father's Day thing. It seemed like uh, it might have been at Pocono, it might have been at uh, Michigan at times, but there was always a, a program. And that was really good when Matt was a little boy. Uh, that, that was that was really good. But And I'm sure Jeff's going to agree with this. I mean, every day is special as a father. Um, it couldn't be more proud of my, my kids. Uh, I love my kids. And every day is special, uh, just like every win is special. Like Rockingham, my first win is not, not special to me, not more special than the rest. They all are real special. And the same way, you know, with memories of, of things with my kids. You did mention earlier about the letter that my dad wrote, Jack Ingram. Yeah. I would like to share that. It was just by happenstance. I was looking through photographs and I saw that in my photographs. And that was a letter that. My dad wrote Jack uh, Ingram uh, after I had broke his record, which was really bold because he won hundreds of races that, you know, they were just called late model sportsmen before they were called Bush. So I was a little embarrassed by making a big deal out of that. Anyway, my he, Jack, was gracious enough to say a lot of great things about me. He saw me race uh, as a kid kid at Cincinnati, Ohio, he brought his uh, late model sportsman car up and ran against the ASA cars. And we ran a 400 lapper. I finished fifth or sixth, you know, and he, that impressed him. Uh, and so he still talked about that. So my dad wrote that letter to Jack. It brought back so many memories of the person, the heart that my father had and uh, the person that he was. And so that, was probably as special as any Father's Day I've ever had, that memory. Mark and I were um, both really fortunate to have fathers that believed in us no matter what. You could see it in Mark's dad. You know, he knew his son was a badass, and he was proud of him, and he knew his son was going to beat everybody. And my dad was the same way, you know, just full of confidence. And, and man, that matters. Like it matters when the your father believes in you. It matters. My dad, no matter what, you know, believed his kids were going to beat your kids at whatever it is we were doing. His were going to win, and it put some pressure on you. But it was the kind of pressure that young men and women need. Like there's an expectation. I believe you can beat that guy, but you got to go do it, and it. You know, that's a that's a blessing to grow up with fathers that believe in you and the fathers that want to be involved in your life and fathers that took time out of their life and put things aside to go be with you and support you. Not everybody can say that. And for those that can't, I feel that's just you know, it's a huge, you know, it's just sad. Uh, and I don't ever take that for granted that my dad, no matter what, supported me. And I've tried to, you know, he gave me that example. I try to do the same with my kids is that, hey, ain't nothing for nothing. You don't get something if you don't work for it. And, and if you expect something without working for it, then you've come to the wrong place. But if you want to work and you want to put, put it out there, I'm right there with you, man. And we'll go and we'll do whatever we got to do to be successful. But 
but you're going to have to work for it. And, and, uh, I, every day am blessed that my dad put that inside of me and I've tried to put it inside of my kids because it's, it's the right way to go through life. Heck yeah. Yes, it is. I want to give a quick shout out to, to my grandpa. Uh, I don't get to hang out with him a whole lot, but, um, and I'm adopted. So growing up in Vermont and he's been in Florida and, but whenever I do get to see him, it's, it's like I've been there the whole time and he's always been really supportive. And my dad, my dad was the only one growing up that never faltered. He, he never questioned about the dream of, you know, being in NASCAR and being in the industry. And he was a carpenter. He wasn't a mechanic. He sponsored guys, but that was about it. And he figured out how to wrench on go-karts from reading a book. And we won a lot of races together, won Allison races and late model races. And, and he did everything he could and, and sacrificed my mom's retirement on racing. So I'm, here I am trying to pay him back. But uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to my pops too. So guys, awesome. Appreciate the time. Mark, Jeff, thank you so much. And everybody listening, be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode of Mark Mamba and the Mayor. <laughs>